The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Giving our patients vaccinations is a vital service that GPs offer to our community. During the vaccine consultation, we are best placed to have the important conversation about how to live safely and the importance of ongoing personal protection and social distancing measures. There are grave concerns in many areas as we head toward the lifting of lockdown restrictions. In today's podcast, I will be speaking to Professor John Dwyer. Professor Dwyer, tell us about yourself. Um, David, um, I'm a retired clinical immunologist. I've been in academic medicine all my life, spent 15 years at Yale University in America, came back to Australia and was head of medicine at Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney for 25 years and um, uh, clinical dean for the University of New South Wales at that time. As an immunologist, I've obviously been following the happenings with this epidemic very closely and uh, have been um, expressing my opinions publicly about the way Australia is handling the epidemic for some time. And I continue to be very concerned uh, for the whole world, of course, but but particularly looking at the uh, some of the inadequacies, inadequacies, I think, that are making the our battle with COVID-19 worse than it should be. So that um, uh, there's a a number of issues that I think we as health professionals need to continue to need to emphasize to the government to make wiser decisions as we move into the next phase of trying to live with COVID-19. Now, John, I want to uh, bring up the fact that you wrote an opinion piece recently expressing your concern that in fact the New South Wales Premier might be easing the lockdown restrictions too soon. What do you mean by that and would you like to comment on it? Well, I think in New South Wales we've seen two phenomena that worry me. The first is I think now with with hindsight it's obvious that when this new wave of Delta infections hit Sydney we did not introduce a broad range of effective restrictions quickly enough. Um, it's, a, it's a situation where the world has, uh, has been able to demonstrate that you need maximum pain for maximum gain, and you have to do a whole lot of things at the same time. Now, we, did, we, we basically, David, we drip-fed restrictions out into the community, and uh, that has seen, um, that has contributed, I'm sure, to the current situation being quite, quite serious. The politicians are under great pressure, and I understand that, to try and ease restrictions. People, there is a, there's a very real COVID fatigue in the community. Um, there's quite a few people who are vocally uh, dissenting against these restrictions and chafing at the bit to get life back to normal. And of course, we health professionals meeting up with our patients, suffering from, uh, from financial stress, from psychological stress, having children at home under not less than ideal. So we all understand that people want to break out of these restrictions. But time and time again, experience around the world shows that if you ease up on the restrictions too quickly, you completely uh, abandon all of the uh, advantages that you've had obtained from those restrictions. 
And that, that it is crucial to understand that the limitations of vaccination are such that vaccination alone is not going to give us a scenario where with just, fact, just with high rates of vaccination, we can get about pre-COVID life. 2019 is not coming back because of vaccinations. So I think that it's, it's, it's crucial that the public understands and gets a different message. The, the, where we, we only want to ease restrictions when it's timely to do so. And when the easing of those restrictions is not going to see another, have another surge of uh, infections. Around, around the world, the, uh, we've got plenty of examples of exact that happening from premature, premature easing up on restrictions. John, there are two issues that you've just raised, and I'll touch both of them. And this is quite concerning because you're saying that vaccination will not give us the pre-COVID life we seek. And yet it is almost as if the citizens of the state are promised a pre-COVID life if they get their two jabs. Um, and, and, and is that a, a missed messaging? And if so, what might it lead to? That's the first. The second is you mentioned examples around the world, and maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the other countries. Well, look, I think that to be fair, the, uh, the gov government spokespeople in Canberra and both in, in, in the States are saying that uh, we will have to continue some restrictions after we reach, reach our vaccination goals. But the emphasis still is far more on get vaccinated, get vaccinated, and, um, and we will be able at 80% to do all sorts of things. And in fact, the prime minister has said, we are gonna open up at 80%. Now, 80% is better than 70%, 80% is not as good as 85%. The, it's not, a, there is no magic figure. And uh, I think that unless we prepare Australians now for the fact that social distancing into, into 2022 and probably beyond, that various public health initiatives are going to be essential to control uh, to, to allow us to live more freely uh, and accept that the Australians are going to have to enter into a social contract with each other <laughs> to actually uh, accept and, uh, and, and adhere to those restrictions, we're going to find ourselves in the situation other countries are in. Now, let's, uh, let's look at a few examples. In the UK, for example, where they've got about 70% of the population fully vaccinated, the Prime Minister on July the 19th declared Freedom Day. And on that one day, all restrictions in the UK were lifted, all the social imperatives that, uh, uh, for um, uh, safe, safe practices, et cetera. Um, what's been the result? Well, the result is that as of today, about a thousand people are admitted to hospital every day. There's, um, uh, there's 130 deaths on average every day. And a crucial issue, the hospitals in the UK are absolutely desperate because of the, uh, they're being overwhelmed by sick patients, <clears throat> totally distorting the ability of the health system to offer equal service to other people. If you look at Canada, this, the same sort of scenario has happened. Just this week, Singapore, which had been living comfortably with COVID as a mixture of restrictions and high vaccination levels, was so confident of their situation that they said, right, we'll look for other similar countries and we'll have this safe bubble within them. And they picked Germany, they were going to have this uh, freedom of travel between Singapore and Germany. And they were so confident that they eased their restrictions and just relied on vaccinations. Within literally within days, 
a Delta wave swept across the country and just this week they've had to cancel all those arrangements. Israel, um, which for many, for many months was touted as the, the model for the world, um, very high vaccination rates, um, had, ran into the same problem. When they started to ease restrictions, they, they've had these flare-ups. So it's perfectly obvious now that until we get better vaccines, until we get drugs that can treat COVID, and please hope, please God, they will be forthcoming in the, in the relatively near future. Until then, we need to have this partnership between vaccination. Don't, don't, I mean, obviously all of us, all of us health professionals, we, we have a duty to try and emphasize the public that everybody should be vaccinated. And we can talk a minute about vaccinating children, which uh, hasn't getting enough attention. But the more difficult thing, you know, vaccination for people is it was one jab in the arm today and another one in a few weeks time, and that's it. Social distancing, the restrictions that we require are a daily nuisance, a daily requirement for the foreseeable future. If we don't adhere to these things, we're going to be in the same situation as other countries with a hospital system that is, is bursting at the seams, not able to function efficiently, too many people getting very sick, too many people dying. Now, a major concern I have is that we are not preparing Australians now for the reality that, that even that post 80% vaccination, if we can get to that level, and that's going to be difficult, that post that getting to that level, we are going to have to live with uh, restrictions day in, day out for the foreseeable future um, restrictions that will allow us to, to be productive and to enjoy many things that we need to enjoy, but nonetheless will, be, uh, will mean that life will not, not look anything like it did in 2019. And I don't think Australians are, are being prepared for that reality. If they're not prepared, they may, not, uh, they may just throw up their arms in horror and say it's all too hard, and we'll have the same problems that they're having in other countries that have, that have had, that, uh, had that outcome. Now, Sean, I'm a little bit concerned in the sense that uh, with social distancing, what do you make of um, having a drink in the pub with your mates, sitting in a restaurant or going to a big football match? Well, just this week, it's interesting that Dr. Tony Fauci in the United States, who's the president's major advisor on COVID, came out and said, this is madness that we're having packed football stadium. And when there's Delta virus floating around, <clears throat> we know that um, it can easily pass from one person to another sitting next to each other, even in an outdoor event, if you're, if you're very close together. The situation that we're facing is, is a need to accept the fact that, for example, on all public transport, in planes, trains, buses, et cetera, we should be wearing masks in the foreseeable future. At the pub, Buy a drink, but don't stand around the pub chatting to your mates uh, and laughing and uh, etc. In close quarters, slapping people on the back. In a restaurant, when you wear masks until you sit down at tables that are social, where you're social, you're spatially distanced from each other. It's it's these sort of um, restrictions that we're going to need to follow and and adhere to. Wearing masks in any crowded situation, indoor situation. Now, it's not a pleasant scenario but it's an infinitely better scenario than the one, the alternative, which is to have us continue to be crippled by rising, rising levels of infection, morbidities, deaths, hospital stresses, and, and people with having all sorts of mental health problems and physical health problems. 
So this is the time for putting forward to Australians a more realistic scenario of what living with COVID is about. Not, not, to, not to say that, that, there's, that, that a life that isn't productive and enjoyable is beyond our reach with COVID, but it's going to require a whole host of measures to, to get that level of to get that to that level of living that we that we that we really want. If given the ideal situation, John, how would you see this message being pumped out to all uh, Australians? And in the absence of that ideal situation, how else do you think this important message can reach out to every person here? Well, David, as as, um, uh, as we're speaking, I'm in the middle of writing another opinion piece highlighting my distress that there is a national plan for getting to a certain vaccination number, mm -hmm. but there is no agreement among the states. There's no national plan. We're not six countries, we're one country. And um, what we've got is premiers bickering with each other, the prime minister being accused of politicizing the distribution of vaccines. Mm -hmm. These are the things that are in the headlines, not the things where you and I are talking about at the moment. Mm -hmm. And um, we have to, we're a, we're a fairly homogeneous society in Australia. We're not like America where Texans are very different from New Yorkers. In Australia, really, we, uh, we, we have the advantage that, yes, we have these states, but under, in normal circumstances, we move freely across the states. We have relatives in different states. And we don't think of ourselves as New South Welshmen or, or Queenslanders so much as we're, we're all Australians. At the moment, however, we're a nation very much divided. If you look at the rhetoric between the, the premiers, if you look at the arguing between Canberra and the, and the states, we're a nation divided. And so Australians aren't getting a homogeneous message that if we want to open up, all states are going to have, the, have, to, have to employ exactly the same tactics. All citizens of Australia are going to have to uh, adhere to the same social restrictions. And we should be preparing for that now. If you, if you look at New South Wales, where one unvaccinated driver getting infected while driving an infected, someone infected from overseas, has that one person has spread virus and started this, this incredible crescendo of infections that we have in New South Wales. Other states should realize that at the moment, uh, they may be fortunate and have, have uh, no cases or only a few cases, but any day in any state, um, a mistake can happen and this thing can, this thing can explode. And into the future, if we want to move freely around the country, if we want to, again, be able to go and spend Christmas with our relatives in another state, etc., acceptance of the uh, nationwide acceptance of a uniform plan for vaccinations and, and, and public health initiatives is absolutely crucial. And we can't have um, Western Australia saying, well, look, we, we're basically going to keep away from the rest of Australia forever. We can't have the Premier of Queensland saying, until we vaccinate babies, we're going to keep uh, our borders closed. We have got to come to a, an agreement on what are the, what are the, uh, the parameters that all states have to follow, that all Australians have to accept, that will allow us to live with COVID. Not the way it was in 2019, life won't be the same, but it will be, we can be productive and enjoyable and safe, but only if we, get, if we live that way. And, and we need to be spreading that message now, and that's, that's not happening.
next 90 seconds contains an important public health announcement. Hi, my name's Christine McCartney. I'm the director of the Australian National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance. This is just a reminder to vaccinate all of our uh, patients this year for influenza. We've had a challenge rolling out both the COVID-19 vaccines and influenza vaccines, and I know that's particularly felt in primary care. But we are down on numbers vaccinated for flu this year compared with some of the excellent uh, rollout that's occurred in 2020 and even in 2019. Last year, 2020, we had almost no flu season and there's not much flu activity this year. It's never possible though to predict when and if a big flu season will come. People are quarantining, but we've seen COVID-19 breaks through quarantine and we could easily see that with influenza. In addition, we'd like to start to open up and have more travellers coming you know, in and out of Australia, particularly as the population gets vaccinated against COVID-19. With that will come flu. So we are on the cusp at some time in the near future in having another whopper of a flu season. And that's the reason to be sure to, to be offering flu vaccine, particularly to the most vulnerable people in respect of you know, serious outcomes for influenza. Just quietly, what are the chances, John, that they will actually agree on a uniform plan for Australia? I think that there, there will have to. The question is, where is the leadership going to come from, from that? Mm -hmm. And really, the, um, the, the, the leadership needs to come from Canberra. That's where it should be coming from. Mm -hmm. it, should, it should come from this, uh, from the National Cabinet and taking advice from Ataji, from the, from the scientists and, the, and, the, and the, 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 the experts. But it probably is going to require all sorts of, of public commentators who are respected mm -hmm. um, to start putting pressure on the government to, to do this. That we, we need to express our, our unhappiness with the current state of, of, of a lack of, of uniformity a lack of cooperation, a lack of a sense of oneness in this struggle mm. against COVID. Mm. And we can all do our bit, but I think that, um, uh, that I'm hoping that sentiment will grow and spread and put pressure on the politicians. Um, I, don't, I think the average Australian is certainly not happy, not satisfied mm. with Australia's response. We're a country that if, if we'd been doing this podcast nine months ago, we would be sitting here patting ourselves on the back saying, well, you know, whether we're a bit lucky country, we, we got a head start because we're an island at the bottom of the world, et cetera. And look, we've, we've kept COVID out. But of course, when it came to what should have been the easy part, vaccinating, getting vaccinations, et cetera, mm. uh, 2021 has turned out to be a very different year and we have not been this clever country. And then of course, the luck, our luck has run out. Mm. So I think these are the imperatives that, um, that, that need to be, need to be emphasised. Mm -hmm. I, I have not heard this message put out as clearly as you have, John, uh, that your great concern is really not just uh, the fact whether we open up or not, it's a fragmentation of leadership uh, and the lack of a uniform agreement in this important area. I agree with you, David, yes.
Now, there are two other issues uh, that are secondary, not as important as what you've just mentioned. One will be immunization of children, which you uh, intended to speak on. Uh, the second, of course, is this real concern about hospital uh, beds that you mentioned in overseas, especially in England. Uh, uh, we keep hearing um, at the moment that our hospital systems are coping in New South Wales. And yet I remember distinctly in the very first wave, uh, we spent a lot of time teaching um, all our fellow citizens to be careful about and, and to preserve hospital beds. There, there seems to be two different messages. David, I'm very concerned about the situation. I think that, the uh, again, our politicians haven't been as honest with us as they should be about the potential crisis in hospital care. Uh, look at the situation we have. We have increasingly uh, increasing numbers of people getting COVID with the Delta variant who require hospitalization and ICU. Our ICUs are full of people from every decade of life. We have a finite number of, of intensive care unit beds in New South Wales, something like 700. Um, we've got now we're talking about turning recovery areas in outside an operating theatre into, into a pseudo uh, ICU. I'm particularly worried about the, the staffing situation. Mm. Uh, I am hearing, constantly hearing from colleagues about the enormous pressures and the problems that they're having with adequate staffing. Even in the news, the regular news this week, there have been nurses saying that they're doing, commonly doing 12 to 16 hour shifts, that um, uh, they're, they're totally exhausted. We made a, another big mistake by not mandating that all frontline health professionals needed to be vaccinated. So we've had about 20% of our hospital staff aren't vaccinated. Now they, they need to be vaccinated within the next few months. But we, what happens is that if in, in this current situation, exposure to the virus, people in an emergency room might mean that a number of those staff have to go and quarantine for, for two weeks. So we have a workforce crisis and we have exhausted staff. We have doctors and nurses who have died. If you look at the situation in a country like Italy, where more than a thousand doctors caring for people with COVID so far have died. It's a dangerous situation and it's an enormous pressure on the, on the system. And we need, to, uh, we need to face up to the fact that if we do not tame this spread of COVID in, in our communities better than we are at the moment, we're very likely to have a situation where our hospital system is in crisis like it is in other countries. And of course, it means that the people needing, the, the people who continue to need care for a stroke or a heart attack, et cetera, are going to find it more difficult to get the adequate care that they need. Now, all sorts of plans are being put forward to increase the capacity for intensive care unit. But as, as any, any medical professional listening to us knows, um, this is a highly specialized area with, with, with one-to-one nursing and one-to-two doctor ratio required and all sorts of equipment and, and special training. And, it, and turning a recovery area into an intensive care unit is, um, is very problematic. So we need to do everything we can to maintain the need for ICU beds within our capacity for regular, well-staffed, well-equipped um, ICUs. And again, I don't think there's enough, uh, enough concern about this 
Yes, we hear all sorts of stories for the fact that the system can cope and will expand if necessary. But I think those of us who have spent a lot lifetime working in hospitals and working with colleagues in ICUs know how difficult it is. Plus, I think the, 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 um, the, the, the strain on the professionals offering these services is underappreciated. The mental health, the physical health of so many of these people um, is really, really, really a serious issue. I would like one day in the future to come back and talk to you about this issue because we will have the benefit of hindsight uh, several weeks uh, forwards. So, John, tell me about your thoughts about vaccinating children. I think vaccinating children is an essential part of the ultimate strategy to live safely with COVID for a number of reasons. First of all, with the Delta variant, we're seeing more and more children uh, infected with COVID and more and more of them are uh, getting, having symptomatic disease. One in four infections in New South Wales at the moment occur in children. We've had three children in intensive care units in the last week. If you look at the America, there have been 4,000 admissions of children to hospital in, and, uh, and more than 400 deaths. But apart from that, uh, studies even as recently as two weeks ago uh, studies of, of, the, uh, of toddlers, two and three-year-olds, in terms of their capacity to transmit this virus have shown that they are very effective transmitters of this virus. So of course, adults can infect children, but children can infect adults. In a way, it's very clever of the virus to not particularly disturb most children in terms of their health, but have them be agents for the spread of the virus. So that we need to vaccinate children to protect them and to protect the community to cut off cut off a stream of possible infections for the virus. The other issue that, that has many virologists concerned is that asymptomatic children carrying high viral loads are, are an incubator for variants to develop. It's very very nice for the virus to be able to. Uh, you know the the, the 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 biggest weakness of the Delta virus is that it doesn't get out of the person that's infected within two or three weeks. Either it will kill that person or the person will kill it. Neither neither good for the virus. So asymptomatic children are also potential vectors for new variants of the virus. We have this mu, mu variation that's just been, um, uh, just been recently appeared and studied now in 40 countries around the world uh, that seems to have properties that might make it uh, highly efficient. So cutting off this, this possibility or minimizing the possibility for new variants to develop is crucial. So we need to immunize children from the age, certainly from the age of five up. There have been, there are now a number of trials doing, going very nicely, thank you, showing that Moderna vaccine, for example, is, is perfectly safe in, in very young children. But it will probably be early next year before we get around to the TGA and, and, and the FDA and other like agencies uh, giving authority for immunizing very young children. But I think it's got to be our aspiration to do that. Uh, and of course, the, uh, we need to, at the moment, really emphasize um, and put effort into getting the 12 to 16 year olds immunized, particularly in terms of, of having them safer at school. So when we talk about 80% of the population being vaccinated, but we're talking about 80% of people over 16, that's only 65% of the population. That still leaves millions of Australians unvaccinated. And I think the other, the other, other real potential problem that we could will now see in the near future if it's going to be a problem is this whole business of vaccine hesitancy 
<laughs> study after study shows that between 11 and 15% of Australians plan not to have the vaccine. And another 20% are sort of, well, I'm not too sure about it. Getting to 80% among adults may be very difficult. David, the, um, the vaccine produced a good immune response, which fortunately is protecting 90% of people who are vaccinated from dying or getting serious illness and needing hospitalization. But our experience over the last year shows that immunity is waning after about six months with these vaccines. So much so that it's almost universally considered that a third booster dose is going to be needed to, 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 uh, to get maximum immunity. The, we have, this is a, a significant issue for vaccine passports because your vaccine passport may not be as good as my vaccine passport. If you were immunized a year ago and your immunity is waning and you are more likely to be carrying virus, uh, and I was only immunized three months ago and I'm, I've got strong antibody levels, um, we have, it's a different, a different situation. And we know that the breakthrough infections are occurring more frequently as, as immunity wanes. In Australia, we have decided to suboptimally immunize the population by bringing forward the second injection. All of this the mm -hmm. clinical data shows that extending the interval between the first and second dose to at least 10 weeks it, with Pfizer and AstraZeneca produces a much better immune response. But in, with, in the, with the COVID situation, the way it is in say New South Wales, where the doctors are being told to move up the second injection to try and get a little bit more immunity quicker. Mm -hmm. Now that, that is, a, um, uh, that's, is arguably a sensible idea, but the fact of the matter is that, um, that, that Australians are being suboptimally immunized and certainly will need boosting booster doses. Booster doses brings up all sorts of problems with the WHO screaming at us that you wealthy countries, you want a third injection when only 2% of the world is, 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 the poor world is getting vaccinated. So these are all, these are all significant issues and um, that need to be addressed. But at the moment, I think that the realization that vaccination in partnership with evidence-based social restrictions, that's the, mess, the major message that I think all of us need to be pushing to people. Such an important message. Uh, Professor Dwyer, um, as we come to, towards the end of the podcast, I, I know that was a beautiful, important message to end on, but I ask you for key messages for GPs and also keeping in mind that these messages will also be for GPs to pass on to our patients. Well, I think the, the GPs are under enormous strain. I mean, just like a hospital has to care for a whole range of patients, despite the fact we have a COVID epidemic, many of my GP friends are telling me what a strain it is to try and maintain service for their people with Parkinson's disease and heart disease and manage their hypertension when they're under enormous pressure to basically run a clinic that um, uh, vaccinating people. It is crucial, I think, especially for vulnerable older people, that GPs do do the vaccinations because I've been, I'm much concerned about genuine informed consent in many situations where uh, in a mass vaccination hub, for example, you're not going to get the, uh, the information that you might need um, uh, at the time with someone who knows you and understands your situation. But it's putting GPs under enormous pressure. 
GPs have a wonderful opportunity while they're doing the immunization to say, this jab I'm giving you today and then I'll give you in a few weeks time. It's terribly important that you're doing this because you will be protected from serious illness and the potential of dying. But in terms of the life that you saw that you would like to be leading, unless you go and see your grandchildren and give them a hug, uh, to interacting with your children, look, going back, getting back to socializing with friends, the lifestyle that all of us would like to lead is not at the end of this needle. That's only one factor. It's, we need you to go out there and to tell everybody that we've had this discussion about how it's crucially important that we continue with sensible evidence-based restrictions on intermingling that we know will minimize opportunities for the virus to keep hopping from one person to another. It's got to be a partnership between these vaccines, vaccinations and our continued troubling of the virus by keeping away from each other. Professor Dwyer, that is such an important message. And I wish you well with all your articles to, uh, as you write to our leaders. And if there's anything I think that, uh, that you think that GPs can help in this campaign, reach out to us so that we can uh, try and see if we can get a groundswell of support for your cause. Thank you, David, for the opportunity to discuss this with you and, and all our colleagues who, uh, who are going to look at, this, look at this podcast. I wish you a very good day, Professor Dwyer. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.